Welcome to The Mentor Files. I'm your host, Monica Royer, founder and CEO of Monica and Andy. Join me as I chat with some of the world's leading entrepreneurs, inspiring CEOs and experts at the top of their field to bring you the Audible MBA, unfiltered advice and mentorship every mover and maker needs to find their voice and success. Here we go. I'm going to start out this next introduction by saying I am simply obsessed. A decision to become vegetarian at the age of 12 paved the road for our next guest's career path. Growing up in Tokyo, Miyoko Shinner loved the rich and flavorful gourmet cheeses, but found herself conflicted as she had such strong compassion for animals. She eventually went vegan and then set out to create one of the biggest plant-based cheese brands of all times. Miyoko first found success in 2012 with the release of her groundbreaking book, Artisanal Vegan Cheeses, which kicked off the start of the vegan cheese revolution. From there, she set out to create it for others, and today, Miyoko's Kitchen offers all types of dairy-free cheeses, including versions of chevrey, cream cheese, of which I eat at least a tub of hers a week, and mozzarella, as well as their number one product, butter. Her products can be found in more than 12,000 stores throughout the U.S. Today... I will say that Miyoko blew my mind with not only her approach to being a CEO, her evolution will surprise you. Her dedication to being vegetarian, she starts her day off at her farm each morning. But in addition to that, the idea that you can be a founding CEO at any age and stage of the game. Miyoko is truly an inspiration to me, and hopefully you'll listen in today to what she has to say because I guarantee she will be an inspiration for you as well. Incredibly excited to welcome Miyoko Shinner, who is the tenacious award-winning vegan celebrity chef behind Miyoko's. Her passion for her craft and mission is unrivaled, and the publication of her groundbreaking book, Artisan Vegan Cheese, kicked off the start of the vegan cheese revolution. Now, Miyoko, before we even get started, I have to tell you, at home, we have like four food groups, and Miyoko cheese is literally one of our food groups. We eat it like probably twice a day because we have like your cream cheese on bread in the morning. And then we always have your cheese at night too. So like my, like Rob and my daughter and I are enormous fans of your cheese. So, well, I love it. I love it. Yes. We Says that you've got good taste. So there <laughs> we lo- like, I feel like for people that haven't tried it, like, and I've been vegan for like 15 years or something. I have never tasted cheese like yours. It is just like, it's so, so good. So for people that don't know about your brand, Miyoko, tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Thanks for the, uh, for having me on the show, by the way, what we're doing at Miyoko's is trying to revolutionize the dairy industry by making your favorite products, cheese, butter, cream, et cetera, from plants rather than from animals. And we've tried to put a very premium high-end spin on these products. So they don't t- they're made from whole foods. We use natural fermentation to transform ingredients such as cashews. Or in the future, we're, we're actually fermenting legumes and potatoes and oats and things like that. And we're able to ap- apply uh, microbiology and fermentation to transform these foods into things that are very, very familiar to you as, you know, cream cheese or 
some fancy cheese wheel for your for your party, or we'll be introducing cheddar and and pepper jack soon. And our butter, of course, our butter is not margarine. It's it's this amazing concoction that will elevate any dish that you make. So that's really what we're doing is we're using whole food ingredients, fermentation, and transforming plants into dairy products. And tell me a little bit, even before I ask you how the company started, because I'm really interested to get into that. Tell me about the little girl, Miyoko, that was growing up. You were born in Tokyo. Were there signs early on for you that you would become this plant-based dairy entrepreneur? Like what about your childhood shaped where, like where you've come to today? Well, that's really interesting because when I grew up in Japan, you know, Japan has no history of dairy. We didn't eat dairy. They eat dairy now, but when I was growing up, uh, way back in, you know, I I won't reveal how, actually, okay, I'm 62, so this okay. is a long time ago, and I was growing up in Japan. We didn't have dairy. I, I mean, I remember the first time my mother got me all dressed up, and she said, we're, we're going to a very special place and eating something very special. We got into a taxi and drove to some fancy hotel, and we sat down, and the waiter brought out these two little bowls of one perfect scoop of vanilla ice cream each. <laughs> and I, I ate my, my, the ice cream for the first time in my life, and I thought, oh, my God, how could food be so good? I was just blown away by that. <laughs> but, yeah, otherwise, you know, dairy was just not in our household. We didn't have it. Now, when I moved to the United States, I remember I was about eight years old, and I was the only Asian in this tiny town in California, and... I just felt so Japanese. I felt so out of place. You know, all my friends had blonde hair. And, and so I went to this party and this was the time and, and they were going to be serving pizza. And I'd heard about this food called pizza. And I thought, oh my God, this is my chance to become a true American. You know, maybe my, my hair will even turn blonde. And I was like so excited. And I took, took my first bite of pizza. And I remember the grease dripping down my throat and my mouth and thinking, oh my God, this is disgusting. (laughs) This is like the worst thing I've ever tasted in my life. And I had to pretend it was delicious. And I'm like, oh yes, it's very yummy. (laughs) Anyway, it was just gross. But it didn't taste good. It didn't taste good. But I worked so hard at at learning to like cheese and uh, until I became this major cheese aficionado. I mean, when you eat it, I think when you when you have a really clean palate and you're eating mostly grains, like I was Japanese, I grew up eating a rice based diet. I wasn't vegan or vegetarian, but you know we didn't eat a lot of meat because that just was not part of the Japanese diet. There was there were vegetables. We ate soy, we, meaning we ate natto and tofu. We ate fish, but it was a really clean, light diet. And then all of a sudden, you introduce something that's really, really greasy and cloying like cheese. It just doesn't taste good to someone like, like you know the Japanese. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I feel like my mom's an immigrant from India and, you know, she didn't really eat like snacks for the most part, like processed snacks or sweets. And so it's interesting to see her diet today or really that much dairy either. So I do think like it's, you know, when you when you're not introduced to eating things as kids, as opposed to like the kids here where all of that stuff just like is commonplace. I mean, my my daughter thinks pizza is like the greatest thing that ever happened, although she's really good about like she's she loves vegan cheese too, which is great. But it is interesting how much your upbringing like really shapes your palate in so many ways. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So, so no way in hell was I thinking of becoming <laughs> the vegan cheese queen because I thought it was a disgusting food. So, anyway. so what was the evolution then, Miyoko? Like when did you, when did you evolve? It's, it sounds like you didn't, you weren't vegetarian as you were like, as you were or in the, at least in the early stages of your growing up. And you know, that's, I think what I was reading is like, you were a vegetarian since like the age of 12 or something. So how did that all evolve for you? Well, actually, so after I moved to the United States, you know, and I learned to eat cheese, my uh, parents made sure that I ate a lot of meat and I fell in love with meat. I mean, it was, it wasn't something that I grew up in Japan eating a lot of, but in, but, you know, back in the day, you know, that people thought that was how you got nutrition. And so we ate a lot of meat and I fell in love with it. And when I was 12 years old, I went on a school camping trip and I was put into this so-called vegetarian group because there were a couple of vegetarians in the class. I guess their parents were you know, some like Hare Krishna or Yogi or something. It was just a thing back then when some yeah. people were becoming vegetarian. So I joined, they needed several people. And so I volunteered to be in their group with them. And, and when I got home, somehow the light bulb went off in my head and my mom put pork chops in front of me. I still remember the moment when she, that pork chop came in front of me and I thought, oh my God, I can't wait to sink my teeth into, I got tired of eating millet for three or four days. <laughs> and I can't wait to eat the pork chop. And then she put it in front of me and I, I couldn't eat it. I pushed it away. All of a sudden, I made that connection between the pork chop and the animal that it was. And I couldn't eat it anymore. And I just, that was it. It no longer looked like food to me. I remember, I still remember that. And I thought, well, maybe I'll get over it in a week. And I didn't. I, you know, a few days passed and I still couldn't stomach the idea of eating animals. And that yeah. was it. I mean, I became a vegetarian overnight never thought it about never thought about it again and then in my 20s i transitioned to veganism that's so interesting cuz i feel like for me like i didn't again it was like about 15 years ago i think that i became vegan and it i never really liked meat that much I, it just didn't really agree with me like i was fine with it but i always found myself even with the hamburger like i loved like the bun and the ketchup and the mustard and the pickles and but i just it like there was something about like it just it just I don't know. I wasn't that appealing. And then what I realized after I became a vegetarian is I was eating so much dairy. Like dairy was almost like an addiction. Like it tastes so good. You want to eat more of it. And I remember reading a book about dairy and I thought, well, you know, I just, I can't imagine not eating dairy. Like, I feel like it's almost like strange. Like how, how would I eat if I didn't eat dairy? And then I stopped eating it. And it was like, after a while, I mean, it was a considerably long while, but like the taste for it totally went away. And I, you know, I grew up here, I'd grown up eating it, you know, milk was one of like the top tiers on the food group and like all of those things when I was a kid. So I, I felt like it was interesting and and I don't know, I just like felt so much better. So I feel like everybody's different in terms of like what foods they can tolerate and not tolerate. But for me, I feel like not eating meat and cheese has been like just significantly beneficial like personally, but it's a pretty incredible that you were able to do that since the age of 12, because I think, you know, my daughter's vegetarian and she does eat some dairy, but you know, she's, she's vegan for the most part. And I think that I see how difficult it is for like an eight year old as she navigates different situations in order to be able to do that. It's not, it's not that simple as a kid. Cause you're in so many situations where like, there's not that many choices. So I feel like I'm, I'm so excited to see people like yourself and other people in the plant-based industry where like suddenly we're in a world where there's just going to be so many more choices for us, which is so exciting. 
It really is, but I completely understand. I have three kids that are in their 20s now, but when I was raising them, I, you know, we were vegan at home, but I didn't force them to be vegan outside of the home. I, I let them be vegetarian because otherwise it was really, really challenging. I was worried about the pressure, you know, social pressure, et cetera. But I think it's a lot easier now. When they were growing up, it was, it was pretty hard. They'd chosen to be vegan. You know, as, as they got older, they just chose not to eat pizza when they were out. So because they were influenced at home. But I think it's, there's a lot of social pressure, I understand. And the other thing that's really interesting is statistically vegetarians actually eat more dairy than omnivores. Yep, I'm sure. Not vegans, but vegetarians. Because yeah. we, you know, I ate, I mean, I ate so much cheese. It was ridiculous when Me I was a vegetarian. Too. Yeah. Well, and, and Miyoko, I do again, but it's mainly your cheese that I eat now. So I feel okay about yes. it. <laughs> that's, that's different. That's different. But, you know, but, but the thing is, one thing we have to all remember is that the reason you felt better from by giving up dairy and I felt better is that you know seventy to eighty percent of the population in the world is actually lactose intolerant because two thirds of the world actually never grew they didn't evolve with dairy in their diets and we forget that a lot of people think that you have to have dairy for calcium and strong bones and all this stuff but the fact is if that was the case how is it that two thirds of the of the world evolved without any dairy. Right. Uh, and, and people were just fine. So oftentimes we have a very, very microscopic view of uh, diet based on our cultural identity and our time and place. And we forget to examine the larger world and, and how the world really has evolved, how the human species has evolved. So, uh, so true. Places. And uh, obviously, like, I, it's it's really exciting to see today. I mean, what you know, Beyond Meat was like one of like the number one IPOs of what last year and, and oh my God. the top of all time. So where do you, even before we get into how you, how you ended up arriving at the, at this brand, which I definitely don't want to miss doing. I mean, it must be really exciting to be where you are in California and like such a major part of this movement. Well, this is, this movement has been coming for a long time. I have been at this for a long time since I went vegan over 30 years ago and I started my first little vegan bakery company and, and I've had a number of companies and I have known that this moment was coming for a long time. It was a hunch deep inside me. What we really are in right now is sort of like the second wave of the food revolution. And the first one was 12,000 years ago at the advent of agriculture, but when, you know, up until then, people just foraged and ate whatever they could find. And then humans learned that they could actually grow food and eat foods that they cultivated. And now we're at a point where we're even beyond that. We're thinking, you know what, we need to change how we eat. We need to be conscious and consciously choose the foods that we eat in order to save the planet. Because the way we have been eating is destroying it. So now we have to consciously create a new food system upon which we can actually save the planet or by which we can save the planet and save all the living beings that share the planet with us. So it's a really, really critical point in human history. And it's a very exciting time because we're no longer just eating whatever it, you know our parents feed us or whatever is available or what corporations tell us, but we're actually saying, you know what? This isn't working. This isn't right. We're going to create a new future food system based on sustainability and compassion towards other living beings. And we are going to reinvent how humans eat. And it's going to change very rapidly. It means so true. And it must be exciting to actually be part of that. I often think to myself, 
oh, why didn't I start something in food? Because with the company that I have, which I love and it's been so fun, I'm like, I never really have anything to eat at the end of the day. People that start things in the food industry are so smart because like, (laughs) they always have dinner. There's something waiting when they get home. So Miyoko, tell me a little bit about how you went from your beginnings in Tokyo, then you're, you know, a vegetarian, you're living here, you become a vegetarian here at the age of 12. When did you really decide, when did the idea for Miyoko's Creamery really come to you? Well, the the idea for Miyoko's Creamery really didn't come to me until about six months before I launched it, to be honest, which is about five years ago. Okay. And I'd written a book, I'd written a book called Artisan Vegan Cheese, was published in 2012, sort of became a cult classic, cult hit. And I wrote that book really to satisfy my own, own craving for cheese. You know, I'd been vegan for, gosh, 25, 30 years. At the, and I, like you had described, I'd lost my taste for cheese, but it was, there was something like bugging me in the back of my mind. It's like, you know, I used to really, really love wine and cheese. That was like, to me, the good life. And sometime before, you know, I, I, I fly off the face of the planet, I wanted to make sure that I could have that experience again. So I started experimenting with different ways of, of fermentation, took some cheese classes, um, didn't eat the cheese, but I took the classes to, to learn about methodologies for making a dairy cheese. And then I applied it to plant-based milks and mostly nuts, but also oats and, and legumes. I wrote that book and I, you know, I've been a failure in many, many businesses. I've had <laughs> other businesses in the past that fell flat on, I fell flat on my face multiple times and I didn't feel like I had the business chops. So I was never, ever, ever going to go into business again, but I did want to write another book and I wanted to show other people how they could make cheese. So they could also satisfy that, that, that craving. And so I wrote the book, didn't think anything about starting a business. And as I went around on a book tour, people kept saying, oh my God, I love your cheeses, but there's such a hassle to make. You know, can't you just start a company? It's just, I just much, much rather buy it, buy the product. And I heard this enough times and eventually I just said, okay, I'm going to do it. It's going to be my last hurrah. Let me just see if, it, if I can make it work. And so I started the company five years ago, but it just morphed into something completely different because initially it was going to be a little e-com business with uh, a little retail shop on the side and it just blew up. So here we are now. I'm so glad you did (laughs) because I feel like I love to cook and I feel like when you're vegan, I don't know if you cook more, there's just less options for eating out as much. So we find ourselves like making a lot of food at home. And I have never made my own vegan cheese. Like I've looked at recipes, I've seen your book and it's just like, I I was like daunted by the process. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is like beyond my scope of being able to do. So I'm I'm glad that other people convinced you to do that as well, because it's definitely much easier to purchase the cheese in in its most delicious form than it seems to be. I think so. To make it so... so, and, and what's exciting too, and this is not what I hear from a lot of founders that I talk to. Usually when I talk to people, they're like, all right, I had the idea. And then it's like three to five years until they actually start to sell it. So how did you, how were you able to do it so quickly? How did, how is it like a six month time from like, you're like, I should do this to like, I'm, I'm doing it. You know, that's just kind of how I, how I am. I'm just sort of I don't do all this market research and figure out how do I do this right. I just start doing things. And that's kind of how I've done everything in my life. Back in the 1990s, I started this restaurant. I did put together a business plan for that restaurant. I raised a small amount of money, opened this vegan restaurant in San Francisco. And then one day, 
So I had this product called, not a product, but I, for every Thanksgiving, I served something called the Unturkey, which was a recipe I'd published in my very first cookbook back in 1990. And one day this guy came for Thanksgiving and he had the Unturkey and he goes, oh my God, this is amazing. You should go to this trade show and I bet you'd sell $50,000 worth of this stuff. So I did. I just like, like, oh, when's this trade show? And the <laughs> next thing you knew, I was on a plane and I took the Unturkey to this trade show, Expo East, and I did actually in one weekend write $50,000 worth of orders. Wow. And, and then I got back and, and then I was like, okay, how do I do this? How do I get it from California to the East Coast? And I had no idea how to do any of this stuff. And so because I, I knew that I couldn't do it, I just wanted, I, no one told me that I couldn't do it. I just did it. And I managed to, to find distribution and got it into stores. And then I, I sold the restaurant, started this natural food company. You know, of course, I didn't. It was just kind of a disaster in many ways. But the timing wasn't right. All kinds of things weren't right. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. So on and so on and so on. But, but that's just kind of how I do things and, and make for better or worse. And I think over the years, I have gained enough business experience to know that I, I could probably, I had a strong hunch that there was demand for this. And it's interesting because if here's something I found out about a year after I started the business, we actually started buying Finn's reports and looking at Nielsen data and, and understanding the market. And what I realized was that had I done the market research before I started the company, probably all of the, uh, the experts would have told me, oh, don't start this company. Because at the time that we started, there was no market for premium artisan vegan cheeses. It, the, the category didn't exist. About a year after we launched, the category had grown by the amount of our sales. So we basically created a category. There, was a, there, was a, there were a few really, really, really tiny, tiny players in the marketplace, and it totaled about $100,000 throughout the country. That was the total size of the category. That, so you know, any expert would have looked at that and said, there's no market opportunity, don't even do it. But I, I, because I didn't know that, I went with a hunch. I felt this was the thing to do and discovered there was a lot more pent-up demand that there just hadn't been a solution for it. That product just hadn't been there. It wasn't that the demand wasn't there. It's just that no one had come up with that solution. Absolutely. And tell me a little bit about like what... What in the early days, Miyoko, was it just you? Did you assemble like a little bit of a team? Like, how did you like actually scale? And then a second part to that is like, was initial distribution for you like the the way that you were able to reach so many people? I mean, I, I discovered you at Whole Foods, right? Like just in the like sort of the vegan section where they've got all like what I think about right. is the good stuff. I was like, oh, right. what's this? Like we we definitely got to try this. And it's right. interesting. It's so elevated because before I, I can't remember what vegan cream cheese I used to buy, but like it, like the, your products are just they have such an elevated taste to them. But like what did you actually do to go from what you were like the starting kind of this getting your idea off the ground? And by the way, I love the idea that you just do, you know, you have an idea and you're like, let me just do instead of like spending a whole bunch of time thinking about how you're going to do it. You just do it. But how did you get like from doing that to like the distribution that you have? Sure. Well, we started out really, really small. I rented, there was a space that I had been thinking of, wow, this would be a really cool space. It was an old grocery store, that, a natural food store that, that had moved and expanded and it was in my neighborhood. And I thought, wow, this is a really, really cool spot. I'd love to do, you know, a, a really cool business should go in there. And so when I decided I was going to do it, that seemed like the right spot. So I rented it 
you know, I got a lease there and I hired employees and, and we, we first started out in my home. We started, I, I had three vegans, local vegans that I started working with and I taught them how to make cheese in my kitchen and in my home. And then as soon as we got the, the permit, we moved in there and we just started cranking out cheese. And initially it was going to be e-commerce. I didn't know how to get back into distribution. I'd been out of distribution for 10 years or so and I knew that the industry had changed and I wasn't sure how to do it. So the idea was just do e-commerce. And we went live on a Friday afternoon in September, five years ago. So just literally, literally five years and a month ago. Wow. And $50,000 seems to be the number because by Monday morning, we have $50,000 in orders. Oh my goodness. Um, and that's when I knew that there was demand. And the question was, how the hell are we going to make all this stuff? <laughs> uh, so that was really the, the sort of the turning point. And then I realized, okay, we can't just do e-commerce. We have to get it back into stores. So we got a local distributor that I ran into at a veg fest who helped get us into Whole Foods. So three months after we opened, we were at Nor- uh, Whole Foods in NorCal. And then we got into another distributor that went up, up and down the West Coast. And then eventually we went nationwide a year later with larger distribution. And, and the reason we were able to get that larger distribution was because our velocity was so strong at the local and regional level. And velocity means the movement of product off the shelf. So you know, all of that is a testament to the fact that this type of product was long anticipated by consumers. And consumers wanted an alternative to, to dairy products. And I think a lot of that was fueled by what's going on in, online, the information that, that is being, um, that's, that's available about the dairy industry, the impact on climate change, as well as the cruelty within the industry. Consumers were ready. And, and not only right, in, initially it was mostly vegans that were buying the product, but it quickly flipped um, the flexitarians, um, the lactose intolerant, becoming uh, environmentalists that are they're becoming concerned about the environmental impacts of dairy. And how much, Miyoko, do you think that your marketing, like your packaging played into doing so well too? Because I feel like not that there were other choices for the type of artisan cheeses that you were putting together, but I feel like there's something about your marketing, like the packaging, the the way that you've got the name centered and the kind of the similarities between all of the different products that are so just, I feel like your brand is very strong. Was that from the very beginning? Is that what oh. your packaging looked, up, looked like, like all those years ago at Whole Foods? From the very, very beginning, I wanted an elevated look. I wanted a look that was going to be different from everything else. That wasn't hippy dippy. That was... Uh, more elevated than even mainstream. And so we had a very artisanal look from the very get-go. About two years in, we redid all of our packaging, maintaining the same feel of the brand, so be recognizable, but really brought it into more mainstream. I brought in an amazing branding company to do that. Actually, we hired the creative force behind that branding team. Um, He's internal now. He's our uh, creative officer. So we've really been able to do a lot with our branding and our messaging to communicate what we're trying to do, not only the beauty of the brand and the elevated lifestyle of the brand, which is what we're trying to do, is really bring veganism out of the dark ages into this sort of 
you know, this elevated lifestyle that is achievable for everybody. So that's one of the goals, but we also want to communicate the mission, the purpose of the company, the reason that we make these products. So I think branding is, is absolutely key. Packaging is absolutely key to uh, whether or not your product is going to get recognized on the shelf. And tell me a little bit about the evolution of your funding. So, you know, you started this off kind of out of your kitchen almost. You have a couple of other chefs that you're working with. You meet somebody at like a, a festival and you end up like starting in one Whole Foods and obviously that quickly expands. It sounds like you had really good marketing from the beginning where you where you really were focused on like your packaging and the look and feel of what you were doing, which definitely I think is was is very eye-catching in a section where like things maybe are there's there's opportunity to be eye-catching, let's put it that way, because you know, some of the stuff just doesn't it doesn't look as appetizing necessarily. When did you first decide that you were going to take in outside funding from this to scale? Actually, in the very beginning. From the very, very beginning, we raised a small amount of capital. And the way I did that was, well, actually, it was very fortuitous. One of the, the people that most encouraged me to start this business was, was Seth Tibbet, who is the founder of Tofurky. And he and I had been competitors back in the 1990s when I made the Turkey and he made the Tofurky. But we had stayed in touch and he had tried some of the, the cheeses that I was making in my, my home. And he said, wow, these are incredible and you need to start a company and I will help you. I will help fund you. So he actually became one of the first investors. And when I decided to start the company, I just started telling people about this. I started saying, you know, I'm going to be doing this company and I'm going to be looking and I need to raise a certain amount of money so that I can, you know, get the lease and buy the equipment, you know, small equipment, but not big pieces, but just, you know, things that could bigger than at the home kitchen, but, but not where we are right now. And I'm going to need to raise a small amount of capital. And I was just surprised. I had friends that just said, well, I'm good for this amount of money and I'm good for this amount of money. So I was able to raise angel capital through friends, as they say, friends and family. And then, of course, Seth Tibbet and a couple of other, uh, Billy Bramley, who is the founder of Wildwood, which is another soy brand that sold to a larger company, he invested. And so really capital just came out of the woodwork. I didn't really seek any of it. And I, we raised enough money in about six weeks to secure the lease and buy the equipment and, and just launch the company. And then I started shopping it around. We, we, we were growing so rapidly, I knew I needed to start raising you know, venture capital. And so I started talking to people and raising funds. And we are, you know, backed by, by VCs today. We're very capital efficient, meaning that we've raised the proportion of capital raised to our revenues is, is uh, actually small. I mean, it, it's quite good. We've, been very, we've used the capital very wisely. We built two plants with it, the, the first prototype plant that I started out in, and then we built the current plant that we're in. We built a team out of it. You know, we're up to about 112 employees now. So it's grown rapidly. You know, we haven't raised the hundreds of millions of dollars in capital that some of these other plant-based companies have. It's been just a fraction of that. Tell me, Miyoko, yeah. a little bit about... Well, first of all, um, I think to recap what you were saying there, I think as people are thinking about raising capital, I think you thought about things in, in many of the same ways that I did. I think, you know, people always say, how do you go out and raise capital? And it's like the friends and family round is the best way to do it to begin with because it gives you an opportunity to kind of have like proof of concept. It gives you a little bit more money to play with than if you were just like bootstrapping the whole thing yourself. And then sometimes to raise bigger chunks of capital, there's like a natural evolution after that. 
Tell me a little bit about your personal evolution as a CEO. So like, as you were starting this, it's like you started off and you were a chef and then you, you, you authored a book. And, and I think sometimes what people don't realize now you've got 120 people at your company. Can't, it's not always an easy evolution. Sometimes what you start doing as a founding CEO is incredibly different than what the job is like four or five years later. So tell us a little bit about that, your personal journey at the helm of your brand. Sure. That's a really, really important story too. Um, when I first started, I was having a lot of fun. And then about <laughs> when we got to a year and a half in or something like that, we had about 30 employees. And one day I looked around and, and I was just, things weren't going right. There were huge operational challenges. I was getting very angry. You know, I just, I was like suppressing. I was like, why can't they do their job right? Um, and one day I looked around the company and I thought, oh my God, this is not the company I set out to start. I set out to start a company that was going to inspire employees, be a really happy work environment, that we were going to offer all these perks to all of our employees and we can barely pay the rent and and people are stressed out and I'm stressed out. And what is this company anyway? Does anyone even know why, you know, what's the purpose of the company is? What's the mission of the company? And I looked around and I just didn't know, I, I was losing grip on the company. And I, at one point it got so bad that I almost quit. I almost walked away when I had this big fight with a plant manager and he was, a, he was really, really an angry person. But I realized he was a reflection of me because I was becoming that angry person. And I almost quit. And, and I was about to call the investors and say, you know what? I can't run a company. I don't know what I'm doing. And mm-hmm. um, apparently there are people that, that know better than, than I. And then I realized that the reason that the company wasn't doing well, that we were having so many issues was because of me, because I was a terrible leader that I had a great product, but I really didn't know how to be a leader. I didn't know how to inspire that. I didn't know how to motivate people. And I had to take a good long look at myself. And I realized that the environment that I had created was all a reflection of me. I was raised a Buddhist and I was told I was to, um, with the concept that if you're complaining about your environment, look at yourself because your environment is a reflection of who you are. And I, I all of a sudden realized that that was, it was all me. It wasn't them. And I had to start working on myself. So I read books. I got a CEO coach. I started just thinking about what do I do? And I, I guess one of the biggest things was I had to start thinking about being intentional in every moment. So if I was in a meeting and things weren't going right, I had to think about, okay, you know, it was like that. What would Jesus say moment? It was mm-hmm. like, okay, what would a really, how would a good CEO handle this? How would a good leader handle this moment? And I would have to, before I said anything, I would have to think about that. And I think it's an evolution. I think that entrepreneurs can become good leaders. Sometimes they're not, and you have to bring in outside help. And I think my investors initially thought, okay, we got to get rid of this person and find somebody <laughs> else. But, but they have maintained, you know, they have learned, I think they have maintained their confidence in me because I think I've evolved. And I'm really, really proud of the company that we have all been able to create because today, I think we have a really different situation. We have a company that's on fire. We have really motivated people. We have a wonderful work environment. And this was a result of all of us working together. You know, human resources, our office manager, our marketing department, just everybody just pitching in. And as I changed, I found that I started to attract different kinds of people. And the ones that weren't right for the company left the company. 
And so we have this great work environment now, and we've done a lot. We've taken a lot of initiatives to create that environment. For example, we do something that a lot of tech companies do, but food companies usually don't do. And we have a commissary. We feed our entire staff three meals a day. There's always food. We have, you know, a chef and sous chefs and so on. And we have beautiful organic vegan meals. We don't allow animal products into our facility, so you can't bring a ham sandwich to lunch. And because we don't want you to have to go out you know, and, and spend money on food, we provide all of that. We decided we, you know, we cover all 100% of our health, the health benefits of all our employees. We create a 401k program. And so we, a benefits program, we try to really create the best benefits program that we could for our stage of evolution of the company and tried to create programs within the, the company to really make sure that everyone in the company understood the mission of, the, of the, and the, the purpose of the brand. So we have a company that's on fire. We have, indiv- we have employees that are on fire. I mean, it's really, really exciting that when, you know, the, the finance director comes up with creative solutions to things that are really, really outside the box because they're all so excited about the brand. First of all, I wish I worked there because I feel like the meals sound amazing. So I have that. I mean, that's they are, like they are they are amazing. Oh, yeah. I'll have. I'm going to come visit yeah. ne- next time. I'm or, yeah. or where you are. I'm coming please to visit. do. Please do. <laughs> but one of the, I think you said something really poignant on top of that too, which is I think that owning your own mistakes as a CEO. I think that one of the number one qualities of really good CEOs, and I certainly don't put myself in that bucket, but I, you, after hearing you talk about this is like the job really strips you bare. It will expose you for every single one of your weaknesses. And you really have to be humble and willing to work on those weaknesses because otherwise you you won't survive. And there's such an evolution of the job. The thing that the founding CEO needs in the beginning, like the creativity and the ideas, the ability to, to be the maker of the brand, it, it's a totally different position, you know, three, four or five years later. And, you know, I think about that all the time for myself. Like, how do I need to evolve to be the CEO of Monica and Andy like two or three years from now? That's going to need to be a different person. I'm going to need to have a different skill set at that time. And I've already become a different person and a different CEO than I was when I started. So I think that part of that is just constantly being like, wow, the company and the culture and all that is a direct reflection of who, who I am and who I'm hiring and who I'm bringing onto the team. But I, I like really am awed by your ownership of like your own flaws and mistakes, because I feel like there's so many times too, where I've just like at the end of the day, you know, we're ultimately responsible for the things that go wrong. It, it's like, it's a, it's a lonely place to be sometimes, but I think thinking about your personal evolution is like a really big part of it. All of that said, like, what do you have any recommended readings where you're like, these are the, these are like the one or two must read books that I've, I've kind of, that you've kind of looked at that helped you to chart your path? Yeah, I'm not sure if there were any, any one book. I mean, there were a number of books Mm -hmm. um, across different ideas. Uh, You know, like just, there were lots of things like I didn't know how to hire people. And so I read a book, I read several books, but the one that I really liked was called Who, just W-H-O. There's a book called Traction. There's a subtitle for it, but it's really about how do you create traction in your business and how do you create, how do you get everyone on board on on the same page? And so that was a really helpful book for me. My CEO coach, Barbara Shannon, was just, has been incredible and in, in really giving me not just, just tactical things, but also giving me 
uh, and feedback on the things that I was doing wrong, but also on validating the things that I was doing right and, and helping me believe in myself, which is, I think is a huge issue, especially for women CEOs. Women tend to underestimate their abilities. We tend to underestimate our hunches. We, we'll, we'll just dismiss them and say, well, I'm not the expert. You know, I should consult this guy who's an expert. And we dismiss our, we're very dismissive of, of ourselves sometimes. And when we're, when we're actually right your own strength, growing into your own power, growing into your own confidence, I think is also really, really key for, for women, especially at an older age. You know, I mean, I started this company when I was 57 years old. And I think sometimes, you know, if you look at millennials and their 20s starting companies, somehow they have the chutzpah, they have the confidence. But an older woman who's been through raising a family and has been challenged on many different levels before and has had to has questioned whether or not she's even the right person or, you know, has compared herself maybe to her husband who's successful and you, and you just, you're, you, you've met all these challenges and you go through life questioning what was the purpose of my life? Like, what was this all about? Why am I here? What, is there anything I can even really, really do that's impactful? I think it's, it, it's even harder for older women sometimes. So really under, really just becoming comfortable with who you are and, and, and owning your own confidence is also key. So there's, there's so many books out there. There are so many stories that I've read of other entrepreneurs as well that are powerful. So, you know, I just would get as many books as you can and just learn about them. There, um, there's another like a coach name. I think his name is Brendan Bouchard. And I watched a few of his videos and read his book as well, too, which I thought was, was valuable. And, and some of it, I, I can't say every single, I applied every single technique to sure. everything. And you have to find your own style. But I think just I think the most important thing is really being intentional and really just that sort of you know, like what would Jesus do type of thing. I, I really, really try to think about that. Like I really try to step away from who of myself in that at that moment and look at it from outside and think, okay, you know, what is the right thing to do? Not not just react, but what is the right thing to do? Miyoko, I love all of this. This is just, I feel like you're so inspiring. Like I, you know, I didn't know you before I, I started buying the cheese and the things at Whole Foods, but there was something that did feel really special about your brand. And after talking to you, I can see that that all really starts with you. And I think there's a lot of inspiration for people that are just thinking about getting started. You know, the notion of starting things later in life, like it's never too late to go after things. And I love how you touched on the differences for women in business, because we do doubt ourselves more. And there's so many, there are so many differences, like even from a cultural standpoint and things that, that are, that are different or more difficult sometimes as you, as, as you are a woman leading a, a company in an organization. And I feel like I've learned an incredible amount from you in this short time. And I'm really interested in continuing this conversation too. I feel like these 45 minutes have passed in what feels like two to me. And I, I can certainly sense a part two for this. But thank you so much for joining me today. And when I pick up my daughter at school later today, like I feel like I've talked to so many people on the podcast. She was like, really? The woman that makes the cream cheese? Like she was just, if she could have been here to ask you questions, she would have been all about it. So anyway, you truly are like a hero in our household. Miyoko, so excited to get a chance to know you better. Thank you, Monica. It was a delightful conversation. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed the episode. For more information and tips from our guests, stop by monicaandandy.com or check us out on Instagram at monicaandandy. If there's someone you want to hear from or a topic you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment on iTunes. Thanks for tuning in.